we got a lot to cover today, and you've never heard that from me before, but let's go ahead and get started. Father, we do come before you, and Father, I just confess how amazed I am by you. Father, you are our maker, you are our creator, you are our Lord, you are our Savior. Father, we come before you to worship you as we hear your word, as we hear you declare your majesty to us. Father, we bow down in humble adoration before you. Lord, I pray we would not leave this room unchanged. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word, your declaration, Lord, even your declaration about saving us, Lord, that we would be different, we would love you more, our view of you would be even higher than it is, and ultimately, Jesus Christ would be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, did any of you read chapter 45 before coming? That's okay, we're going to cover it. But man, if you guys are not incredibly amazed by what we're going through, yesterday we started in chapter 44 last week, and we talked about the fact that God's mighty outpouring of grace, we read that in verses 1 through 5. By the way, I'm on last week's notes, so if you don't have it, it's not matching, don't be upset. And we just talked about God's command to Israel not to fear, because he will be faithful. Then we saw in verses 6 through 8 where God says that there is no one like God. He reiterates once again his power. Thus says Yahweh, King of Israel, the Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am first, I am last, and there is no God besides me. God is declaring to us his own majesty, his own power. And he continues to do that. And we finished up on verse 8, and I'm going to pick it up from last week on verse 9. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's one of my favorite passages in the book. Right? And, and I want you to just listen, follow along, turn to Isaiah chapter 44, follow me along in verse 9. Those who form a graven in, image are all of them futile, and their desirable things are of no profit. Even their own witness fail to see or know, so that they may be put to shame. Who has formed a God or cast a graven image to no profit. Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. The craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them be in dread. Let them together be put to shame. The man crafts iron into a cutting tool and does his work over coals, forming it with hammers and hammering it with his powerful arm. He also gets hungry and has no power. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another crafts wood and extends a measuring line. He, he outlines it with a stylus. He makes it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the glory of a man, so that it may sit in a house. In order to cut cedars for himself, he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and, 
and warms himself. He also kindles a fire to break bread. He also works to produce a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns with fire over his, uh, over his half. He eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. And he also prays and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand. For who is smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they have no insight. No one causes this to return to his heart. There is no knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it with a fire, and also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination, and I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on the ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul. He cannot say, there is not a lie in my right hand. Do you guys detect any sarcasm in this? Yeah, dripping. God is going to talk about not the folly of idols. Now, let's be honest. Most of us are not tempted to go out, get a piece of wood, carve it into an idol, and pray before it, right? But we need to understand the process of how this idol is made is really no difference from the idols we may have in our own hearts. First of all, God talks about the foolishness of replacing himself with the hands of with things made from the work of men's hands. He makes four statements about idols. He says, number one, they're all futile, no profit, they're incapable of life. In other words, they can't see or know, and they lead to shame. You can look at, um, and you contrast that, by the way, with the verse 8 where he says, I am God and there is none like me, right? Compare your piece of wood with God. See how it looks. Jeremiah 2, verse 27 says, Who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth? For they have turned their back to me, not their face. But in the time when evil comes, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods which you have made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time when your evil comes. For according to the number of your cities, the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Again, God just says, How stupid are you, Judah? Is a stone your father? Is, is a tree, uh, did a stone give you birth? Is, is a tree your father? Now we look at that and, and we say it's absurd, right? Is anybody going to walk out of here to one of those trees out there and bow down before it and say, save me, oh God? Of course not. But God goes into how man constructs the idol. First of all, man makes God in his own image. Notice he makes it in the form of a man. Right? In the form of a man. Mankind, since Genesis chapter 3, has been trying to shape gods in our own image. 
That is what Isaiah is talking about. He says, oh, he makes it in the form of a man. Right? We want a God that looks like us, that acts like us, and does what we do so we can justify what we do. He crafts them, and then he worships them. And then we look at the sheer folliness. God points out the sheer folliness of what they do. He says, one crafts wood, he extends a measuring line, he outlines with a stylus. He makes it in the form of a man, like the glory of a man, that it may sit in a house so that people can worship. And then he talks about the folly of their own effort. Notice he uses the phrase self-deception. Self-deception. And we know from Jeremiah that the heart is desperately wicked and it is very easily deceived. Now you all sit here and go, you know, I'd never carve a piece of wood and worship it. But how many things in our lives compete for the worship, the adoration, the praise, the honor, and the glory that only belongs to Jesus Christ, right? We may sit there and you can all go, oh, no, not me. Every one of you has issues in your life where things compete for your affection with your Savior. Now, you can deal with those or not. And the rest of the world, by the way, is doing exactly what we read about. Now, they don't carve it out of wood. We have gotten even more detestable and abominable than them because now we make ourselves to be the God. I don't need to carve something out of wood and put it in my house. I'll just worship myself. Right? I'm autonomous. I can do what I want. And if you look at what's going on in our society with this whole idea of autonomy, self-autonomy, it is declaring ourselves God. In the beginning, God created us male and female, but when I say, hey, that doesn't apply anymore, I can be anything I want, it is shaking our hand and declaring that God is not the creator. You are. And that is the same idolatry that we're seeing today. Well, God's going to talk a little bit more about this, but he's going to talk with reference to Israel, and he's going to talk a little bit more about Judah, and he's going to make it clear to us that he has a plan. Um, I'm sorry, I'm still back in, in, in chapter 44. And he's going to remind them that he has given them a promise to redeem them, he has called them, and that, that God has a man who is going to provide them freedom, and that man is who? Well, before this, he's talking temporal deliverance from Babylon. That man is Cyrus. And we're going to see more about Cyrus in chapter 45. Okay, we're going to see God using him. We're going to learn some more lessons. So now we're in our notes for today, and I, and I really intend to finish chapter 45. Yeah, everybody's laughing. All right. I'm t I see you guys throwing down the gauntlet. And you're probably right, but we'll see. Tom, stop laughing. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to hear about this at the next elder meeting. I'll get chewed out. But Okay, let's look at chapter 45. Turn there in your Bibles. Chapter 45 is one of the most delightful, 
amazing chapters in all the Bible. Let me read you uh, an introduction from Orland. He says this, God does not just allow darkness and calamity and then blame them on someone else. He creates the problems of human history. How could it be otherwise with the sovereign of the universe? Isaiah is not saying that God sins. That's our problem. But the strategies of God include within their scope everything that happens as God pursues his redemptive purpose in this world. Evil, now listen to this, evil is not outside God's control. He uses it without being dirtied by it. Therefore, nothing, however evil, deprives God of one particle of his intended outcomes. That's a really important saying. What he is saying is, look, God brought Babylon into Judah's life, into Judah's history for a reason. Now God is going to bring Cyrus into their history for a reason. But what we need to understand, you know, none of us are worried about um, Persia or Cyrus, and we're not worried about this or that, but God may bring other problems into our lives. And you need to understand that God is not trying to blame that on somebody else. If you get cancer, people say, oh, God would never do that. Oh, yes, he did. But God has a purpose. And he doesn't sin and he's not dirtied. God has promised that his glorious salvation is for the future of the world and he's bending all history around in that direction. Isaiah affirms in chapter 45 here, God made his presence felt by, handling the no by handing the known world over to Cyrus on a silver platter. In that very human struggle, God is working out his plan. And three times in the first few verses of Isaiah, God uses a particular Hebrew particle that talks about purpose. We're going to see it in verses 3, 4, and 6. God says, I am doing this and I have a purpose. And I will tell you, and we'll get to this in the implications, that everything that happens in your life, I don't care how small it is or how big it is, God has a purpose. And there is great comfort in that. Nothing is going to happen in your life, nothing outside of God's sovereign purpose. And nothing is going to happen in history, nothing in the Middle East, nothing in Ukraine, nothing in Iran, nothing in the United States, nothing in the next election, nothing anywhere in the upcoming history is going to happen to the most minute detail that is outside of God's perfect sovereign plan, right? And now let me ask you a question. I want to show of hands. Who thinks God is perfect? Show of hands, everybody. All hands. 
If your hands are not down, raise them. Okay. Two hands is good. Thank you, Sam. We all agree God is perfect. Therefore, is there anything that God can do that is not perfect? No. See, sometimes, oh, God did that, it's good. Well, true. I would argue it's not good, it's perfect. It's perfect. I may not understand how that can be used perfectly in my life, but God does. So let's see this. And we're going to see that in this chapter we get to behold God's awesome majesty as he reveals it. Now, have we seen this a few times before? God is going to make these statements about, I am he and there is no other. Why do you think God keeps repeating this? Amen, brother. Say that again. We're dumb and we need to hear it. Okay, now I didn't say that, he did. All right. Okay. I'm just quoting him. All right. But can I read you? I was in my own worship this week. Um, I was reading Psalm 63, and it just struck me how it applied to our, our chapter. Psalm 63, I'm going to start in verse 1. O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land without water. Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will laud you. See, the psalmist says, you are my God, I will seek you. I thirst for you like I'm out in the desert and there's no water. And he says, I have beheld you in the sanctuary. Now, none of you have beheld God in the sanctuary, but you are beholding God in this book. In this book, particularly, God is once again going to reveal who he is. He's going to reveal his own majesty. In fact, he's going to yell it at you. Right? And if your heart is to seek him earnestly, then this passage is going to help satisfy your thirst. Right? It's going to help satisfy your thirst. God is going to... God is going to talk to you. He's going to tell you, this is who I am. And this is how. And in the end, by the way, he's going to talk about his plan. And remember, when is this written? 700-ish B.C.? He's going to talk about his plan to save you. His plan for you. So let's get to it. First of all, he's going to talk about delivering Judah. Now again, is Judah even in captivity yet? Not for a hundred years. It's going to take almost a hundred years for Nebuchadnezzar to come and capture Judah and take them into captivity. And he's going to destroy the temple and he's going to destroy Jerusalem. And that's the end. So it appears. But God will not desert his chosen people ever. And God, and, and think about this, God is naming him a hundred years before it happens. He hadn't been born yet. 
And God is calling him by name the one who hasn't even been born. <coughs> Pick it up in verse 1. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus. Who's God talking to? Cyrus. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed. By the way, that word can be translated Messiah. Same word. Whom I have taken hold of by his right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before them so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasure of darkness and hidden wealth in secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Cyrus, verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, my and Israel, my chosen one, whom I also called you by your name, I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am Yahweh. There is none other besides me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me that they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one like me. I am Yahweh, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Did you get it? He's going to call Cyrus... And he wants Cyrus to know who is going to give him success. By the way, Cyrus hasn't been born yet. And he's going to tell Cyrus, look, Judah, it is I who am doing this. How many times did we see the word I referring to Yahweh? Several times, right? He doesn't say, Cyrus, man, you're really good. You know, I'm glad I chose you because you're able to subdue all these kings and you're able to... He uses a phrase I really like here. Um, let me find it, let me find it. Oh, loose the loins of kings. I was really curious about that phrase. And there's different... He's talking about their swords, right? He's going to take away their swords worn on the loin. There's several views of it, but I think that's the one that's probably true. Let me read you what uh, Oswald said. He said, God is not the Lord of Israel alone. He is the God of the whole world. Israel election is not for itself, and thus neither its deliverance necessarily to be affected by itself. It is this sense in which anointed is used here. Cyrus has been especially chosen and empowered to carry out the purposes of God. In this sense, he typifies the Messiah. He is God's chosen instrument through whom God's gracious purposes will be accomplished, especially as through him who is revealed to the world. That would be Jesus Christ. Cyrus is going to be empowered by God himself to deliver Judah from the hands of Babylon. Notice in verse 1, he chose him. He's his anointed. Um, 
It is used in messianic verses like Psalm 2-2 and Daniel 9, right? In other words, he is set apart for God's divine purposes, even though he is not a worshiper of Yahweh, right? God is, notice it says, first of all, God's taking him by the hand. God is going to hand over the world to him on a silver platter. And God is making it very clear who is doing this. By the way, when Cyrus goes against Babylon, you know, that would sort of be like Air Force playing Ohio State, right? Even though Air Force is 7-0, and so is Ohio State. But that would be, I mean, people would be really surprised if Air Force beat Ohio State 52 to nothing, Right? Watch it. <laughs> right? But metaphorically, that's, that's exactly what Cyrus does to Babylon. Right? Okay, so that was a bad metaphor. But Air Force is 7-0. and Okay, Cyrus isn't doing anything God does not enable or purpose. Did you hear that? Cyrus isn't going to do anything. God is going to lead him by the hand. God will unloose the sword and other instruments of war from the kings he fights, and he's going to make them defenseless before Cyrus's army. In verses 2 through 6, we see God's activity is further stressed. It is God who's going to go before and prepare the way for him. Right, that phraseology we've seen before. He's going to make the path smooth, and and the, he's going to make it smooth. And and what's the exact wording here? Let me go back. Um, hold it. I got it. I got it. Um, yeah, verse two. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. Sounds like John the Baptist a little bit, doesn't it? He's going to go before him. He's going to do that. God is going to enable their success. He will find the mightiest defenses have already been broken and their carefully hoarded and concealed treasures he's going to be able to take for himself. It says he will smooth out the rough places and shatter iron doors. This is probably a reference to the gates of Babylon when he's talking about the iron doors. And Herodotus, the Greek historian, how many of you guys like to read Herodotus? I know Stan does. Um, the Greek historian reported that the openness of the city was so great that the Persians were taking prisoners as they just moved into the palace center. They just walked in and destroyed Babylon. Now we can go to the book of Daniel and we see Belshazzar is told this is going to be happened by who? The hand that writes on the wall, right? Remember that story in Daniel? Cyrus isn't going to have any problems. And God's reason for using Cyrus... God is using Cyrus to accomplish his purposes, and this is important, for his chosen people. God is going to use an evil, unbelieving king to accomplish what he wants for his chosen people. He has chosen him, it says in the text, for the sake of Jacob. Ultimately, he's going to set Israel free and he's going to enable them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. 
Ezra talks about that very thing. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, and I would add, and also Isaiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Huh. In the beginning, God says, Cyrus, you know who is going to do this. And here, in his proclamation, what does Cyrus say? God gave them to me. He knows. He knows because God told him. Right? And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among, uh, among you of all his people, may God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So everyone who remains at whatever place he may sojourn, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and goods of cattle together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. <coughs> God has chosen Cyrus to do this, and guess what Cyrus is doing? He's doing exactly what God has told him. Later, if you look at verses 7 through 11, you're going to see not only does he command that it be rebuilt, but it says this, Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of Yahweh, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought out from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithadrath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, and he gives all the number of the pieces, and he gives them back to the exiles to take back to the temple. He's doing exactly what God commanded him to do. Right? He is working in the heart of Cyrus to accomplish his will. By the way, did he choose Nebuchadnezzar also? And his purpose from Nebuchadnezzar wasn't to free Israel, Judah. It was to take Judah and to destroy Jerusalem because of their sin. And God, for 70 years, is going to bring them into captivity. Jeremiah talks about those 70 years. Daniel talks about those 70 years. And now Cyrus is doing just what God commands. God asserts his sovereignty so that we may know him. He says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these. Do you get it? That is Yahweh. When we look around at the calamity of the world, evil men are doing that, right? Well, in a sense, that's true. But who is ultimately, in his own words, creating darkness and produce, creating calamity? Who's doing that? Yahweh is. Does Kim Jong-un or the uh, 
ayatollahs in Iran or Hamas or Hezbollah or Putin or anybody else act independently of God's perfect will? Not even a little. We need to understand, God isn't apologizing for this. Have you heard theologians, oh God, God doesn't really cause it, God allows it to happen, but it's like God really didn't want it to happen, but he's going to allow it. And God isn't apologizing. I am Yahweh, I create the calamity. He isn't apologizing, he is working his sovereign will perfectly. Right? Ezekiel 38, 23. And I will magnify myself. I will manifest myself as holy. And I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am Yahweh. God will do this so that ultimately we will all acknowledge all of us. Even those who don't believe will one day acknowledge him as Yahweh says this in Revelation 6, starting in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This is during all the judgments of the tribulation. Right? And we're in the, you got the, the seals and then you got the bowls and you got the trumpet judgments. And God is destroying at first a third of all the water and a third of all the trees, and then he destroys all of it. And it says, The men are hiding themselves in caves and among the rocks. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us. And they don't know why that's happening, right? Oh, yes, they do. Listen. And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? See, they don't submit. They know what's going on. My answer to them is, repent, stupid! But instead, they hide themselves and ask the rocks to fall on them and kill them. And they don't, they don't just attribute this to bad luck. They know exactly who's causing it. And who's causing it? The Lamb whose wrath, who sits on the throne, because it is the great day of his wrath. Do you see it? We're not just reading this in Isaiah. We're reading it in Jeremiah. We're reading it in Ezekiel. God is asserting his sovereignty everywhere for the good of his chosen people. We're reading about Judah, right? And again, remember I talked to you and I said, Israel is not the church. Right? We do not, we are not part of the old covenant. We're not part of the Abrahamic covenant. You will not inherit the land. Right? But you are given the new covenant, which is promised, and one day they're going to get the new covenant. Because the new covenant applies to God's chosen people. And you are all, guess what? God's chosen people. Right? None of you are Christians. Because you were smart enough to figure this out on your own. You're Christians because God called you. And the Father drew you, right? And the Father called you and you responded. And then it says in Ephesians that God gave you faith and you believed. Who did it? God. Who calls Cyrus out? 
100 years before he was born, God, who put your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world? God did. Who called you? God did. Getting the idea here? Right? Remember at the beginning I read Psalm 63. Let me go back to it. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. And I want to behold you in the sanctuary. Well, you're beholding him in the word. You're beholding his majesty. Now God wants to really make it clear. <clears throat> he is the maker of the universe. Now there's a reason God's going to go down this line. We'll look at it here in a minute. But let's turn in your Bibles again back to Isaiah 45. Follow along. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. As always, I'm in the LSB. Drip down, O heavens, from above. And let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit. And righteousness spring up with it. Well, how's that going to happen? Righteousness over the whole earth? That can't... Well, I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe to the one who contends with his maker. The earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor pains? Interesting statement there, right? What are you begetting before the kids even begot? Ludicrous, right? Verse 11, thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me about the things that are come to come concerning my sons. And you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It was I who made the earth and created men upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I commanded all their hosts. I have awakened him in righteousness. And I will make all of his ways smooth. He will build my city and let my exiles go without any payment or reward, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Thus says Yahweh, the fruit of the labor of Egypt and the prophet of Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, men of statue, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you. And there is none else, Savior. There is none else, no other God. Truly, you are the God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame, even dishonored, all of them. Um, all of them. The craftsmen of idols will go away together in dishonor. Israel has been saved by Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or dishonored to all eternity. Huh. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, uh, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it a formless place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have spoken in secret in some dark land, and I did not say to the seed of Jacob, Seek me in a formless place. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright, gathering yourselves to come. 
to come, uh, come to know, who carry about their graven images of wood and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and draw near uh, with your case. Indeed, let them consult. Is it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God besides me, the righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, and every word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In Yahweh, all the seed of Israel will be justified and boast. Wow. Can you hear God's anger and God's mercy as he says, look, one day you will all come to me. One day all Israel will live in righteousness for how long? Eternity. You know, people who say that God doesn't, isn't interested in Israel anymore and all that, you just read these passages and go, really, how, how can you say that? Right? First of all, look at verse 8. God will, be the, God will one day bring salvation to the world. He uses words like righteousness, salvation. Eventually, the Lord will call righteousness to prevail throughout the whole world just as he has promised. For example, look at Hosea 10, verse 12. So with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with a loving kindness, break up the fallow ground. Indeed, it is time to seek Yahweh until he comes and rains righteousness on you. Could, could we have anything like this in the New Testament? What do you think? You're looking at your notes and you see yes. Look at Revelation 21. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illuminated it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations... Who are the nations? That's us, right? That's the Gentile world. That's America. That's everybody else. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. God is one day going to save all Israel, and God is one day going to bring a revival, and people from every nation will repent and follow Yahweh. Right? And he's going to bring them all into his temple. But look at his warning with those who contend with him. I love this. Right? And by the way, just sit back. I want you to imagine some of the stuff you've seen on the news from our culture. Right? People with their flags and their signs and their fists up in the air. Don't tell me what I can do. Don't tell me who I am. Don't tell me this. Don't tell me that. Well, here's what Yahweh has to say to them. Look in verse 9. Whoa, woe to you, uh, woe figures of the potter and the clay and of the parent child about to abuse it, to contend with God over his plans. Right, he says to the clay, does, does the clay get to say to the potter what it is? No. How ludicrous it is for an unborn child to say, Father, don't beget me. 
or mother why I'm in labor. I don't think that happens, does it? He, he is saying, how absolutely ludicrous is this? You know, Paul said the same thing in Romans 20. I'm sorry, Romans 9, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have authority over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, God can do whatever God wants. And you don't get to tell him, created thing, what you are going to demand. Because you are clay and he is the potter. See, people all want his God because you are clay and he is the potter. He can do whatever he wants. Right? And we see this example in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament that God is perfectly working out his will. Right? And, and the clay can say whatever it wants, but Yahweh will do what Yahweh will do. He declares his use of Cyrus. In verses 11 through 14 of chapter 45, we're going to see him talk about this. Thus says Yahweh, the Holy Lord of Israel, and his maker about the things that are to come. He's going to talk about how he is going to lead um, Cyrus. And it says in verse 13, he will build my city and let my exiles go. God is going to accomplish this. He First of all, he starts off by asserting his power and authority in verses 11 and 12, where he talks about, you don't get to ask me what I'm going to do. And then he says in verse 12, it is I who made the earth and created it and stretched out the heavens with my hands. I commanded all their hosts. He is once again, I am not like an idol. I'm not like those pathetic things you give your heart to. I'm not one of those things that you can just say, oh, that's what I love, and that love will supplant your love for Christ. I'm not one of those. I am Yahweh. I created everything. I am the one who demands all your loyalty, all your love, all your attention. I demand your life as a living and holy sacrifice. You owe it all to me. And his people bow down and go, amen, amen, right? We are his slaves. You know, Jesus calls us his slaves. He uses that word. Now, a lot of your translations will call it servant. But if you go in the or you have an LSB, it translates it correctly. We are a slave. Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus. Right? I would much rather be Jesus' slave than king of the whole universe. Amen? Amen? God, is clear. God will work by any means he chooses. Who can know creation better than the Creator? Cyrus will accomplish will, notice it says, without any payment or reward. He's going to accomplish God's will because that's God's intent. And God doesn't have to pay him or give him a reward. And then it talks about Egypt, Cush, and the Sabaeans. What he's talking about there is these people who suppressed Israel will now fall behind them in chains. They will submit. They will honor Israel. Isaiah 60, verse 14 says, The sons of those who afflict you will come bowing to you, 
and those who spurn you will bow themselves to the sole of your feet. And they will call you the city of Yahweh, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Is that happening today? By the way, has that ever happened in history? Where the whole world bows down, all those who attack Israel, and say, oh, they bow down and say, your city is the city of Yahweh. Yeah, go to, go to parts of Jerusalem where the Dome of the Rock is and ask those people, is this the city of Yahweh, God of the Jews, and hear what they say. Right? It has not happened. They don't call Zion the Holy One of Israel. But it will. It will happen. Right? We understand that. God is going to do exactly what he said he would do, exactly the way he said he would do it. Just like in prophecy future that's in the past, right? We're talking, he's talking in 700 BC about what he's going to do in 600 and later BC. And we're looking at this in 2023, right? God has accomplished everything he said. He did exactly what Cyrus, he, he told us Cyrus, and Cyrus did exactly, we read that in Ezra. He did exactly what God had intended for him to do a hundred years before he's even king. And I want you to notice, God is Israel's savior. It says he's the God who hides himself. Did you see that in verse 15? You are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel. See, sometimes the world does not know what God is doing. They look around, they see God acting, and they go, there is no God. Right? They think they're, they can do whatever they want because they are not going to answer to a holy God. Well, guess what? He says, they will be put to shame, even dishonored, all of them. The craftsmen of idols will go away together in dishonor. Did you catch that? They can say anything they want about God. They can say anything they want about Jesus, and they do. Right? Because they want what they want. You know, I just heard a thing the other day about um, these, these women who were asserting their rights to have their own bodies. It's my body, and if I want to kill my child, I can. Now, they didn't use those words. But that's what they're saying. And they with they think total authority, shake their hand at God. You're not going to stop me. Well, God will one day. They will stand before him. They may not see him now, but they will. And it says they will be put to shame. They'll be taken away and dishonored. He's talking eternally. Right? He's talking eternally. This isn't going to just be a little embarrassed when you meet him. Right? I mean, when we stand before him, first of all, I believe we will feel shame for some of the things that are what the Bible calls wood, hay, stubble in Corinthians, right? I'm going to be ashamed for all those times I could have done more for him but didn't. But I'm not going to be judged. In fact, it says God is going to wipe away every tear. You ever thought about that phrase? When, when the Bible says when we get to heaven, God is going to wipe away every tear, part of me goes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm here on earth, miserable, you know, getting old, all the parts are falling apart. I go to heaven, I've got a perfect body, I'm in heaven. 
I'm thinking, what tears? I see him face to face. Well, you know what? I believe those tears are going to come. Because at, at the Bema seat, geez, we're going to stand and we're going to answer for all the wood, hay, stubble. And I believe it's going to bring tears to us. I believe we're going to weep over that. Because we're going to see our God and we're going to weep over all the times we did not serve him. We were not faithful. We sinned. We didn't serve him as we should have. But then he is personally going to wipe away those tears. Say, I've covered them. You're good. Right? But the flip side of that same coin is what it's going to be like for those who it says, um, who, who are the craftsmen of their idols. The horror, the indescribable, unimaginable horror they will feel when they realize that they are going to pay for their sins, not that Jesus has paid for your sins. It's going to be, they're going to dishonor, shame. How amazing work to Israel. God has hidden himself, yet he's about to do miraculous work. The rest of the world will know and understand his plans. And by the way, it's still true today. History will show that idol makers are dishonored. Romans 11, verse 25. I've read this to you before, but hear it again. For I do not want you, my brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is going to ultimately save how much of Israel? Well, the text here says all. What do you think that means? I think it means all. God isn't confusing. God's not trying to muck our minds up, God is making it very clear one day he will save all Israel. Their deliverer will come. He is their maker. And he reminds them of that. And then he says, I'm not silent. He speaks righteousness and declares things that are upright that will fulfill his covenant. By the way, does God speak to you? Yes, in this book. You know, I had somebody once ask me, does God ever audibly speak to you? And I said, yes, he does. Every time I read it out loud, right? Because the only way God speaks to us, God reveals himself just like he's doing now. Right now, God is revealing his character to you. By the way, he's your maker, right? He is declaring to you his glory, his majesty. And then he has a call to the nations there in verses 20 through 25. Gather yourselves and come together. And first of all, he's talking to them about how um, they are going to, um, how they're going to suffer. But he says, look, declare and draw near to me. He's, he's doing court. This is another court scene. God is calling them to testify. Who has declared the end from the beginning? Who can do that? Nobody. 
And then he declares, there is no other God besides me, the God and the Savior. There is no one except me. He is a God and he is a Savior that was true in 700 B.C. It's true in October of 2023. It was true in Judah. It's true in San Antonio. And God is going to call for the whole world to turn to him and be saved, and they will. We're going to see just a few chapters later in chapter 49, verse 6. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be, um, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return? I will also give you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Wow. Just a couple more chapters, we'll be there. We'll read that verse again. God is going to use, he's going to save all Israel. And that will be a sign and a thing for the nations. And the nations will repent. You can read about it in a book, what's a Revelation. You can read the details. Romans 14, verse 11. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. Did you catch it? That's the majesty of the one you worship. That is the majesty and power and sovereignty of the God you worship. One day, every knee will bow. Philippians 2 says this in verse 9, Therefore God highly exalted him. Who's the him? Jesus. And bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. There it is. You will, every single soul throughout history is going to bow before Jesus Christ and they're going to either bow in obedience and praise and honor as they declare Jesus to be their Lord and Savior or they're going to bow in judgment. But they will bow. Every single one of them will bow. So let's briefly talk about the implications, just a couple of minutes. First of all, we do not need to fear the events of the world or events in our lives. You know, you've got, man, I, I mean, I can't stand it. Every once in a while we'll put the news on and they're wringing their hands. Oh, you know, Hezbollah and Iran says they're going to do this and... And oh, Russia says they're going to do that, and now they got rockets, and and they're like all panicking, and they're having a this fit, and they're all like, oh no, oh no, and it's like, oh shut up, oh shut up. <laughs> I understand, I get it. If you're there at the time, it doesn't look good. If you're in Israel right now, it doesn't look good. By the way, they've been there before. But here's what I want you to understand. Psalm 62, verse 2. 
Therefore, he will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains should shake into the heart of the sea. Now, that would be a pretty scary event. The mountains go into the heart of the sea. Just, there they go. But God says, do not fear. Because we have seen in our text this morning that he is sovereign over everything. He calls Cyrus. 100 years before the guy's born, or before he becomes king, and says, hey, here's what you're going to do, and you're going to let my people go, and I am going to hold you by the hand, even though you don't believe in me. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for a few things, but, right? (laughs) Yes or no? I don't care what translation you have. It says, be anxious for... What does that word mean? It means nothing. It means don't be anxious for anything. You know, I'm not saying that there might not be things in your life that would cause anxiety. I'm not saying that. God doesn't say that. But here, by the way, this is a command. He says, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your your requests be made known to God. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Get it? Is God sovereign? Yes. Is he say, look, I'm responsible for prosperity and calamity? Did he say that? Did he claim that? We saw it. It is I, Yahweh, who causes these. I am doing it. Maybe somebody in this room this week will get a diagnosis from their doctor that they have terminal cancer. I hope not. I'm not a prophet, by the way. But is God sovereign in your life? Did God cause that? Is it for your good? How do you know that? Romans 8.28, right? Should you fear? No, because it says in Psalm 46, do not fear. And he says instead... You should experience the peace of Christ, the sovereign creator, ruler of the earth. He is your maker, right? Yahweh the maker, that's Jesus Christ, is the maker. And he says he will give you a peace that surpasses comprehension. And then the next thing that's obvious is he's going to call the whole world to turn to Jesus. If you're in this room and you haven't, I suggest you do. Right, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who does that apply to? Who's going to have eternal life? Those who believe in Jesus. Period. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How did Abraham come to the Father? Through Jesus Christ. Now Abraham came to the Father through Jesus Christ looking forward to the cross. He didn't understand all the details, but he understood God's promise. And he believed. And we're told that God counted that to him as righteousness. See, the Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross. We look backwards to the cross. But Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now let me just leave you with one thought. 
Okay? So we read about making of idols. And the guy outlines his wood and he takes some of the tree and he cooks his meat over it and warms himself. Right? And then he takes the rest of it and says, you are my God. And he falls down and he worships it and says, deliver me. We go, oh, we'd, we'd never do that. Right? I mean, I've been in some of your houses. I've never seen a little idol anywhere. You can come to my house. Right? You won't see an idol like that. But I will tell you, you all struggle with idols of your heart. Here's what I define an idol. Idol is anything that competes in your heart for the affection that should belong to Christ and Christ alone. They can be good things. My wife, who I love, by the way, am I commanded to do that? Well, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives, right? But she could become an idol in my life where I love my wife more than my Lord. And Jesus said, if anybody loves father, mother, sister, brother, wife more than me, he is what? Not worthy of me. Right? And you all know there was a point in my life where flying became my idol. And I read the story of the rich young ruler. And I mean, I loved it. And by the way, that was my calling. It wasn't evil. God called me to that. Right? That was, that was my calling. That's what I did. I was very successful. I was really good at it. The more I did it, the more I loved it. And there was a point where I was going to become squadron commander of a fighter squadron. And that's what I wanted my whole life since I was a cadet and man. But you know what? That had become an idol and it was competing for my affection for Jesus. And I read the story of the rich young ruler and that convicted me. And I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't want to love anything more than Jesus. If you want flying, take it. Then I kind of said, but please don't. <laughs> no, really. That was, that was my heart. That was my heart. Lord, take it but I really hope you don't. Lord, help me not to love it more than Jesus. And God realized and God understood that the only way to deal with that idol in my life was to cut it out. And he did. I had the wing commander at Tyndall, which is a fighter base, say, I'm bringing you to my base and you're going to command a fighter squadron. And I was very happy. You can ask my wife. My kids were all buying beach stuff. Right? And then I prayed that prayer, and about two days later, I got a letter in the mail from the wing commander at Tyndall said, I can't get you here, I'm sorry. And, and that was the last time I ever flew. God took it from me, and I'm glad he did, because it was an idol in my life. What I'm telling you is whatever is competing for the affection that belongs only to Jesus in your life, cut it out. John says it this way, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, listen to this, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but of the world. Unless it's Christ and him alone, unless it's Yahweh, cut it out. Remove it like a cancer. Right? Jesus is your Lord and nothing else. James puts it this way. Ye, now he's talking to believers, by the way. Listen to the language he's about to use. You adulteresses. That's pretty harsh. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
sets himself as an enemy of God. Don't be a friend of the world. The world is not your home. You're just visiting. Your destiny is to be in the very presence of God. Don't love the things of the flesh. Now, maybe it wasn't for you like it was for me, right? I mean, God had given me that as a good gift, and I just started to love it too much. And God took it. And God, you know your own hearts. I'm sitting here and you all look, you look so wonderful. You do. You all look like wonderful Christian people, and nobody would have anything in their heart competing with Jesus from where I sit. But see, I don't know your hearts. When I was going to church at that time, very few people knew my heart, but God did. So my encouragement to you is you plead with God, if there's anything in my life that competes with my love for you, cut it out. And he will. I so, that was a prayer I sort of didn't want him to answer. But he answered it gracefully. And, and now I look back and I, I am so thankful God did that. Right? I have a lot of my friends who pursued their careers and pursued all this. And God gets finally put in the background because they're too busy and they're too selfish and they love the world. And I never want that to be true of me and I don't want it to be true of any of you. Okay? And that screams at us out of Isaiah 45. God says, I am your makers. Idols are fools. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and I am so grateful for your word. Jesus, you are my Lord. Jesus, you are my maker. You are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And you are my Savior and my King. And I am your slave. Lord, let that be true from all of us. If there are idols in our heart, Jesus, cut them out. May we go from here and worship you in a new way with a new affection and a new love. Because you are our creator, you are our savior, you chose us and you have redeemed us. And we will be with you as we read in Isaiah 45 for all eternity. We pray this in his name. Amen.